While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. right now no i'm like twerking with my head is that a thing can you twerk with your head <laughs> I don't. is it about it depends on if twerking is about the motion itself or about the part of your body that you're doing it with is or it about like the motion both. itself or is it about how you feel when you make that motion twerking comes from the heart <laughs> you can only it's twerk you can from- only twerk if you believe you you could twerk you have to have the spirit of the twerk in you. <laughs> did you did you see that Disney movie where that uh, that elephant he doesn't think he can twerk and then he gets a magic feather and he's really good at twerking and then they take the feather away from him at the end and it turns out that he was really good at twerking all along. Did you see that Disney movie where that lion cub's dad got killed by a bunch of twerking animals? <laughs> And then he didn't want to be king because he wasn't sure if he knew how to twerk. And then he twerked all over his uncle and then he became the king of twerk rock. And I like mine better. <laughs> okay. That's, that's how riffing goes. You okay. say one and I say one and then you say you like yours better. <laughs> You're real good at comedy. Welcome to Overdue. This is a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. And my name is Andrew. And we're not here to talk about twerking. We're here to talk about books. Well, I mean, we can be both, but we're going to, for the next like 45 minutes or so, it's going to be mostly books. Maybe a little bit of twerking. Like 80, 20 books. 75, 25? <laughs> we'll see what happens. All right. We'll see how this goes. We'll see what shakes out. So you each know, week we like take a, a book off the shelf. Uh, be it digital or literal, and one of us reads it, and the other one asks questions, and maybe we learn something. <laughs> um, what book did you twerk upon this week, Craig? Tell me about it. I read Ray Bradbury's The Twerking Chronicles. Nope. Ray Bradbury's <laughs> The Martian Chronicles. Yeah, The Twerking Chronicles is, is later and less popular, I think. It's Based on the is. novel Push by Sapphire? Yeah. <laughs> Um, okay, so Ray Bradbury, most people probably know him because of Fahrenheit 451, which I think is required reading if you're going to make it through the American high school system. Yeah, I read that in middle school. I read Fahrenheit 451 in middle school. Yeah, I, th- I feel like it was a like a sophomore year read for us. Like we did, we did Great Gatsby and Fahrenheit 451 and a bunch of books that I was just like just barely equipped to appreciate. <laughs> And I'd like—I think I'd like to read some of those again because I, I, for the show, because I think I would like them more now. But technically, I've read them already. I don't know if we can stretch our premise that far. Or uh, what. We might be able to. That was kind of my experience with *Of Mice and Men*. You know, I think there are a lot of books that we were not equipped to read when we were asked to read them, right? <laughs> like emotionally, <laughs> like I think right. technically we could read them. 
and we could talk about symbols and whatever. But I think as an adult, I think there's different, uh, ostensibly an adult, I think there are different things that a book is going to make me think about now. Um, different frames of reference and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I had um, read, I think that was the only Ray Bradbury I'd ever read. And yet I I read that at a young enough age that it clicked in a way that like, I've, I like that book. I like Fahrenheit 451 a lot. Um, and I reread it after college and really enjoyed it. But I hadn't read any other Ray Bradbury. And the Martian Chronicles, I, I have the actual book and it has been sitting on my shelf ever since I took it out of my high school because I liked Fahrenheit 451 and wanted to read more Ray Bradbury. And I didn't, mm-hmm. but I did now. <laughs> <laughs> so you can put my high school book tab at approximately like $20 <laughs> just based on what I've read for this podcast. Um, I mean, do you know a lot about Ray Bradbury? I know he just died a couple of years ago, if you know, if that. Was he active? Was he like an active writer for his entire life, or do you know? Uh, he was still writing later in his life, but all a lot of the short stories that he's kind of known for were written in the 50s and 60s. I know he had a big interest in theater as well. I know he adapted a couple of his novels, including The Martian Chronicles, um, and had, was associated with a couple theater companies in like the 70s and 80s. But um, So is this his first novel then? The list I'm looking at says this is his first first novel but not like he has a couple collections of stories that predate it yeah and that might be a good segue into the general discussion of this book which is that it is a collection of stories um he calls it a novel but he's also called it like the cousin of a novel (laughs) a series of short stories pretending to be a novel he once called this book okay so how does that Explain to me how that structure works then. So the book is set up where it's not really, it's it's chapters, but there aren't chapter numbers, right? Sure. And the book spans, I think it's August 1999. Let me double check that it's August, but regardless, it's 1999 to 20, no, January 1999 to 2026, I think is the year. And well, at least in this edition, later editions, bumped the book back by like 30 years um, Hmm. which is just an interesting wait which way do you mean when you say back so i think they did a reprinting in the 90s where they oh that made it like okay to it's the book starts in 2030 something okay um kind of it runs into that issue of fiction that was written about the future and then the future happens yeah, right. Like all those all those Star Trek wars that talk about like the genetically engineered man wars of the 1990s. Or how like, what was it, last year where everyone was like, where are my hoverboards? Where's my hover skateboards? Thanks, Back to the Future. Have people stopped doing that since it became the year 2000? Like you have, you can carry a computer in your hand. You can access like the sum of the world's information on your magical hand computer and you don't have a hoverboard. So you're mad. Shut up. Everybody shut up. (laughs) (laughs) Well, isn't Google's goal at this point to build the Star Trek computer? Haven't they said that out loud? Yeah, I mean, I think they're just going to keep collecting data until their database becomes sentient at this point. All right. And then it'll win Jeopardy and they'll be fine. 
<laughs> no, I was thinking more like a Skynet situation. Oh, well, that's worse. <laughs> okay. What's worse, a computer taking over the world or a computer winning in Jeopardy? I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, so the Martian Chronicles, each chapter is set in a specific month or year sometime between 1999 and uh, 2026. And some of these stories were published in the late 40s by by Bradbury, and then they were collected in 1950. And then I know that there, the book, the printing that I'm read, that I read, I think was a 1979 printing. And in later editions, or depending on region, actually, one or two of the stories got swapped out, which is mm-hmm. interesting. From it, I don't, I don't know what those other stories are. <laughs> like, do you know anything about why? Or uh, I know that one of them is a really interesting little story that I I really enjoyed that was set in an undisclosed town in the south. And it's after man has colonized Mars effectively and people can, you know, get on a rocket and go there and live there. And it's this southern town and there's a couple white guys like sitting on a porch and one of the, it's in the, I guess it's set in the 40s or set maybe a whenever uh, well i guess it's 1999 but you know whatever (laughs) it's set in a segregationist or at least you know racially uh separatist south and all of the black people in the community are have pooled together their money to get a rocket to go to mars Mm -hmm. and it's basically kind of tearing apart racism and like, what are these terrible? What is this terrible white man going to do when he has no people to terrorize? You know, sure. Um, and I find that story very fascinating and a, a great portrait of where the United States was in the late '40s when Bradbury was writing. But I think they took it out in the '90s. The the reason I saw was that they didn't. You know, I guess Bradbury probably did it himself. Didn't think it was still relevant, which is weird because I don't. Yeah, it's not like racism was done. It's not like, like it's done now. You know. Yeah, like the okay, I guess. Yeah, there's a, there's a really great line at the end of it where this boy comes up to him, to the to the main character who's a racist white man. And just asks him what he's going to do tonight. Like, what are you going to do tonight now that they're all gone? Kind of inferring, that, uh, implying, excuse me, implying. Man, man. I know. Hook quarter in the jar. Oh, man. Implying <laughs> that every night this guy would go out and lynch people. And, Thanks. like, what is he going to do now that there's no one for him to lynch? Like, that's <laughs> just messed up. That's awful. Um. Okay, um, let's let's walk it back yeah. a couple steps. So people are going to Mars. Are they going to Mars because they can go to Mars or because they have to go to Mars? Because they can. Okay. Um, they send four expeditions. So the book is kind of, it's not done so explicitly, but it's roughly divided into thirds. Like the first third is uh, a series of expeditions where a rocket or a rocket or two will go to Mars with some men from America and they will explore the planet, encounter some Martians. Many of these chapters, especially in just how they're structured as stories, kind of feel like Twilight Zone episodes. We can get back we can come back to that. And then 
the second chapter is the second third of the book is men living on Mars, and then the third for you know because of thermonuclear war, no one can go back to Earth, or a bunch of okay. people did, and now no one's on Mars except for a few stragglers, and the the th- latter third of the book is is those stragglers. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so are, going- I mean, are there are there any characters or any? I don't know, plot elements that flow through all of the stories or is it like, or is it looser than that? It's looser than that. It's not through all of the stories. The fiction kind of persists, but he doesn't spend time referencing it if he doesn't need to. Mm -hmm. He doesn't really, excuse me, he doesn't really go into huge detail on what the Martian civilization was. Like, you meet a couple Martians in the in the first couple chapters, and the actual the first two Martians you meet kind of behave very similarly to, you know, normal people. There, it's like a domestic dispute where the wife wants to go out, and the husband just kind of wants her to do whatever he wants to do, and she starts. The, all the Martians have telepathy, and mm-hmm. she starts kind of hearing songs from Earth. And she can't explain them, and she's having visions of this man coming in a rocket. And the husband gets all jealous and, you know, takes her out so that he can kind of refocus her on Mars. And it feels very mid-20th century domestic dispute, which is kind of neat. And then the first rocket of men show up, and the husband goes and shoots them. Like, he tells his, hu- he tells his wife that he's going to go hunting. And this is a Martian guy. And he goes mm-hmm. and he kills them and blows up the rocket and no one knows that the men showed up, you know. Okay. And then a second expedition comes. So it's kind of, they will occasionally reference that this is the second expedition, but they don't reference those char- like the characters from the first story. Okay. And then the second expedition is this Twilight zone episode where they're showing up. And I like this, I like this story a lot because the first couple pages are the earth guys are walking around and they're expecting the Martians to throw like a huge party for them. They're like, aren't you excited? We're men from earth. Like, why are you throwing us a huge party? And everyone's like, you should go see this guy. And they kind of just, you know, brush them off. They end up meeting with this guy and he's some sort of Martian psychiatrist. And he locks them up as I guess, cause he thinks they're crazy Martians. And he locks them up in this room full of people who are like, you know, it looks like they're shooting fire out of their hands and it looks like they're floating, but it's actually just kind of telepathic hallucinations that they're able to broadcast to other people. It's like, Mm -hmm. that's one of the one consistent things that Martians can do. And so he assumed that this one Earth guy was actually, you know, telepathically broadcasting three other men, which were the other guys from Earth. Sure. And so to prove that, the psychiatrist kills all those men and then kills the original guy and then realizes that because their bodies aren't disappearing, that the hallucination is so strong that he needs to kill himself. And then that Martian kills himself. <laughs> like total Twilight Zone. Man. It's great. Okay. There's the third expedition, which is... And it's kind of like, I don't know if in the second one, those Martians were deliberately trying to get rid of the Earthmen because that seemed more like a misunderstanding. But in the third one, the guys land and they all, they encounter 
a stereotypical like 1920s earth uh suburban not quite suburban but that wasn't really a thing in the 20s but like (laughs) a series of homes like a small town in the midwest and all the men assume that it's oh it's the guys that were here before and they were so homesick that they built a community and for some reason or another they keep seeing all their like older relatives or deceased relatives and it's actually the martians like pretending you know like they can disguise themselves because they're magic why are the martians just being jerks like it sounds like they're jerks well they have this beautiful civilization and man keeps threatening it well not really threatening it but i guess the martians are worried that they're going to threaten it so is earth like mad about this yet like do they do they know about really know it's like they don't they're not getting any information on what happened to these expeditions um, and each of the expeditions takes a couple years in between them. So the one where the, all the Martians pretend to be dead people, uh, they end up killing all those guys <laughs> and burying them in the ground. Wait, they who are... The who? Martians kill all the Earth guys. Okay. Yeah. And bury them in the Earth. And then the fourth one, they sh- all the men show up, normal Earth men, and there's this character named Spender. And this is like the one where I think it it's like Bradbury kind of delivering his thesis of the book or at least the start of it this character spender who kind of is a sensitive poet type he is with a bunch of other guys and they land and there's no signs of the martians whatsoever and the scientist comes back and he's like you won't guess what happened you won't believe what happened all the martians are dead andrew why do you think all the martians died um because of disease brought from earth okay what disease do you think killed them Smallpox, chickenpox, chickenpox. Okay, and there's this some actually some kind of pox. There, there's this great uh, paragraph where Spender's like, "Why did it have to be chickenpox? That's like the ancient Greeks being taken down by mumps, or the Romans <laughs> being taken down by athlete's foot." Like he's looking at this gorgeous civilization of you know crystal buildings and you know magic glass or whatever the heck it's made out of. And he's like, they got killed by a disease that doesn't even kill children on Earth. This is not Mm -hmm. befitting of them. So he kind of goes rogue, and he's mad that all the men are, like, getting drunk and celebrating being on Mars. And he kind of disappears for, like, a week or two. And he comes back, and he shoots one of them. And then he goes up to another guy, and he's like, I found a Martian. And he says, the Martian appeared before me and said, give me your boots. And I gave him my boots. And he said, give me your uniform and all the rest of your stuff. And I gave him all of that. And then he said, give me your gun. And I gave him my gun. And then he said, now come along and watch what happens. And the Martian walked down into camp, and he's here now. And then he shoots the guy. (laughs) And then they go in this manhunt where, like, Spender basically, uh, you know, runs off and all the, all the, astronauts or whoever you know they don't really use the word astronaut but for lack of a better word astronauts uh go after him and they chase him down and he gets into this big argument with the captain where he's like we don't deserve to be here like we've spent our entire lives conquering nature and the martians found a way to have a civilization that coexisted with nature and you know we came here and it's all gone now and if we continue to build here we're going to destroy it um, he, has the, he has a quote where he's like, um, oh, what is it? It's, uh, 
we earth men we earth men have a talent for ruining big beautiful things that is a not subtle dig at man at all <laughs> right ray bradbury laying it in thick. so is this this then is one of those sci-fi books that uses a fantastical um location or or whatever to comment on you know, real world themes that are facing us in the present day. Is that the deal? Yeah. Like all, like I think some of the best sci-fi does that. Um, I think you might even be able to argue that this is barely sci-fi and more fantasy just because it's not really concerned with, it's not concerned at all with how the logistics of how any of this happens, you know? Um, And then once they get, once that story takes place then it's really just a series of vignettes that take place on mars that have to do with a mixture of man messing up and occasionally they'll run across a martian like there's one where this martian is in a settlement of humans and it keeps changing shape based on whoever it's with Mm -hmm. and whoever it's with will like project someone they've lost or someone they are looking for onto the Martian. So like this couple sees their dead son and another couple sees their missing girl and a policeman sees a criminal he's been searching for. And this whole community basically tears this Martian apart, like with their own needs, which is really interesting though. I don't know what it has to do with anything. You know what I mean? It's kind of (laughs) self-contained and a moving story, but is not part of the larger narrative necessarily. Yeah, like I'm I'm curious to know what the larger narrative is. Like you talk about the theme being you know, man is not so great. We're pretty good at destroying things and messing stuff up, but we're not so great at building and maintaining stuff. Like is is it just a series of little stories and it never builds to anything and there's no climax or, or like how how strong is the through line? Because the way you're describing it, it doesn't sound like there's much of one. The the first, I would say the, the beginning of the book has a pretty strong through line, like up through that story with Spender and uh, before any of the real settlers come. That has its own little arc. And then the end of the book, when... Earth, you know, there's a series of stories where they keep hearing on the radio that Earth is on the precipice of thermonuclear war. And you see it from the perspective of a luggage salesman who's like getting his store ready because he thinks everyone's going to go back to Earth either to be with their family before everything goes down or to help in the war effort. Mm -hmm. And then that happens and, you know, they all see kind of Earth go ablaze in green fire because that's you know nice and dramatic and then it's really it's a series of like fallout stories that have a that's like the climax of the book is that uh earth was on the precipice precipice of its own destruction and we really couldn't stop it and we destroyed this other place in the process and then the last story is this family who is you know saved up to buy their own rocket and they they do get to mars and the dad like tells his kids that they were going there on vacation but then they actually just stay there and they're like well where are all the martians and he takes them to a river and has them look in the river and goes here these are the martians and they're like womp womp we're the martians (laughs) 
<laughs> we were the Martians all along. Uh, so this is very much a book that's written like not that long after the, you know, the bomb became a thing. Yes. And it's very much concerned with the bomb and the implications of the bomb. I think so. I think mm-hmm. it, it's interesting that it kind of takes as a given that the bomb was going to get used again and to much worse effect. I mean, still still might happen. Yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, We're not, you, we don't really live with it over our heads. Like, I think they did for a while in the 50s and, like, all the way through the Cuban Missile Crisis and beyond even. Um, I mean, I, got, I guess mostly because so many people have it now that it's just mutually assured destruction and no one has been crazy enough to set it off yet. Well, yeah, and you have to figure that, <laughs> You know, two years out, three years out, that was that was not a guarantee, and it's not a guarantee yeah, right. now. But it was even less of a guarantee then. Um, and there's a lot of, I don't. It's not quite fear of government, but the idea that the system doesn't work, and that the people in in charge of the system don't necessarily know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, with the distrust amidst all of the military types, and the idea that Earth is not a place that we want to go back to. There's also this... All right, this... I don't want to necessarily move on from the bomb, but there is this one crazy short story that I do want to talk about. Uh, okay. So, it's called The House of Usher 2. Have you ever heard of The House of Usher, Andrew? Like the fall of the House of Usher? Like the Poe thing? Yeah. It's, it is a whole short story basically about this guy obsessed with Edgar Allan Poe stories. Okay. So he builds this crazy house and calls it the house of Usher two. And he invites this like society of, I think it's called the society of polite manners or something like that. And it is basically the whole chapter is a precursor to Fahrenheit 451. Like these people are against, you know, scary stories and stories in general that might upset people. And he invites them in this big group and basically murders them in this house that is themed after a bunch of Edgar Allan Poe stories and then, you know, locks up the inspector inside of a tomb and makes him say words from the whatever that story is. I don't remember which one it is. It's this, it's a weird thing to read it and be like, oh, this is all the stuff you're going to work out in Fahrenheit 451. Like, the guy is motivated by a government's mass burning of literature and destruction of poetry. And, mm-hmm. um, and I wonder, like, I wish I knew exactly why Bradbury had such a big fear of that. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I'm, I'm trying to, I pause because I'm trying to, think like contextually what would be going on that would prompt those fears because like there's part of this book overall that feels like a critique not on not unlike how war of the world was a critique of british colonialism but a critique of american exceptionalism you know what i mean sure and moving in that's very relevant now and the idea of like America is the one who gets to go to places and dictate what's ha- what happens because mm-hmm. there's even a 
in between the stories that were very clearly published on their own, there are these kind of interstitial vignettes, and one of them is about how no one from other com- other countries got to go to Mars. It was all Americans. Okay. And America, like, he says something like, it should have been people with different accents and different ideas, but they all had to sit and watch while America kept going to Mars. Mm-hmm. And, and so when the you know when the humans go to mars and they mess stuff up it's it's not just saying you know it is the nature of humans to mess things up it's it's also implicitly saying it's the nature of americans to be warlike and to do things without thinking them all the way through first and and yeah to get indigenous people sick with diseases and then like capitalize on it <laughs> for their own profit and prosperity and disrespect other cultures as you assimilate them yeah Um, one of the big rants that that character spender goes on is about how you know all of the places and all of the things here had names and had purposes and were used and we have no idea what those are but we're going to rename them and we're going to come up with our own uses for them that are completely different and disrespectful uh, mm-hmm. I just found that very, I don't know, that's very interesting. It's like you you look at countries or areas of the world that were very clearly sketched out by non-natives, mm-hmm. you know, and a lot of, a lot of that happened happens in the Middle East where like, or even in Africa also like, countries whose borders were drawn by Europeans and ethnic groups and cultures are now clashing because they did not decide what nation state they are a part of. They were told what (laughs) nation state they are a part of. Right. So, yeah, it's not a very, it's not an uplifting book. It's a good book. (laughs) It doesn't sound like it. Um, I'm trying to, going back to Bradbury and, um, his fear of censorship, I guess mm-hmm. I'm kind of wondering like if you if you just look at the propaganda and stuff that that went out in you know during the the during wartime you know in the war period and like the power and the influence of the government in that period, and I guess like a growing fear of communism also. Oh yeah. If you just if you just look at the way that the government is trying to control ideas and the way the government is is you know getting bigger and getting more involved in people's everyday lives, I guess I, I think that that might be where some of that fear of censor, censorship and fear of you know quote unquote dangerous ideas is coming from. You know. Well, yeah, and I think it's interesting to view that argument of censorship in this book because I think when I reread Paranoia 451 I got very caught up in his not quite satire but his distaste for the way media can alienate people because you know you ha- in in Paranoia 451 you have characters that are like the big crazy walls that are TVs and you have you know people who put headphones in their ears and don't talk to each other because they're just listening to stories and 
people are disconnected from books and thus disconnected from each other, which is you know a very one to one thing that Bradbury's arguing. <laughs> but in the context of this book, it feels much more about uh, the government. Well, not, it's it's tricky. I don't know. They're they're definitely linked. I wonder. Yeah, if it's something like coming out of the war and you see a country wield that much power and get an entire nation behind them by using propaganda and using the idea of controlling, not quite controlling thought, but definitely manipulating thought. Yeah, right. Um, that's interesting. I don't know. I want to I wanna read Something Wicked This Way Comes because I... I haven't read that, and that's another one. Which, which one? What is that about? I have no idea. Okay, <laughs> why do you want to read it then? Just because he's written it, and it's one of the other. It's one of the other titles of his that I know. Okay, but I don't know what it's about. Okay, so it's one of those that you know, and you want to find out why it's famous enough that you know about. Yeah. It. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Um. So yeah, I mean. Usually the books that we talk about are larger novels or plays that ha like they they are just one story and so they're maybe a little easier to follow and a little easier to to milk stuff out of but I guess it sounds like what Bra what Bradbury would end up writing about for his most famous work and for a lot of his subsequent work it sounds like it was already kind of taking taking form here. Yes. In a lot of these short stories. Yeah, and as a series of short stories, I really... I, I wish I could explain more about how satisfying they were. You know what? You know how a good short story sometimes is just really satisfying? Because it's very clear and purposeful and concise. Right, it's like a short game or a short anything. Like, you can, you can appreciate... I don't know, just how, how good it is because of how condensed it is like it does, it's not stretched out you can enjoy it in like a short period of time and and i think from a thematic or not not quite character because you don't spend enough time with the same characters to really learn about them but from a thematic perspective of like i'm gonna make this point with this story whereas i feel in a lot of some of the larger novels that we've read the point is to kind of roll around in that world and soak up those characters and see how those characters evolve or react to their circumstances. And this is just a guy churning out thesis after thesis after thesis about specific things. You know, like this is the one story from the Martian Chronicles that deals with race. And this is the one that deals with loneliness. And this is the mm -hmm. one that deals with the world that's left behind, you know. Yeah, and a novel could, like a novel novel, not like a novel in the sense that this book is a novel, could deal with all those themes easily, you know, within the space of its its many pages. But but yeah, it might be it might be less concise. It might be more spread out. It might be less direct just, you know, because it's it's not as condensed and not as like single minded. Yeah. As as I was giving that list of different themes that the novel touches on I was reminded of one story that takes place after the war has started and after everyone has deserted Mars to go back home there's this guy I think his name is Mr. Griggs or something like that and he is finds himself alone in this town and all he's ever wanted was a wife like they set that up that he's kind of a creeper who all he ever wanted was a wife 
and okay. he comes into town because he he would like live in the mountains and he would come down in the town like every five or ten years and like see if anybody wanted to marry him, which is like a weird given character trait that I really like. And then he finds this ringing phone, and he spends like two or three pages obsessing over who might have been calling, and he finally gets a hold of whoever's on the other line, and it's this woman, and he loves her voice, and she's in another town. And so he drives like a whole day to go meet her, and she did the same thing the other direction. So then he goes back, Mm -hmm. and then he finds her, and he finds her utterly repulsive, and he doesn't know how to like tell her to go away. And so after, you know, a couple hours with her or maybe even an evening with her, he just totally pieces and runs away. And it's this hilarious kind of biting story about getting what you wish for and, you know, not being satisfied with what is available to you. So wait, by the end of this book, there are no or like very, very few Martians left on Mars. And there also are very, very few Earthlings left yes. on Mars. Is that okay? they, they talk about how the, the Martians, once the disease started killing them off, probably went and hid. And they're, they're out there. Uh, a couple of the military guys who were part of the fourth expedition do crop up later in the book. Like one of them was all alone and his family died so he replaced them with robots and then the captain from that mission comes back from another planet like he was scouting out Jupiter or something and he comes back and you know meets the guy whose family's all robots another one of them i think his name was Packer a bunch of Martians come to him and tell him that earth they're the ones that tell him that earth is going to blow itself up um so they have these kind of telepathic precognition powers um but they're not like running around as a big group later in the book they're they're all spread spread out if they are alive at all Mm -hmm. so it didn't work out for no one mars did we ruined it (laughs) we ruined it bad good job guys good job america um yeah i don't know what more to say about that it sounds it, it kind of sounds like one that you'd have to read for yourself to get the most out of like it's it's hard to talk about it in a way that's not just like summarizing the different stories. Yeah, because they don't you're right. Like they don't connect in a very literal way. They connect in a in, in a thematic way and they're a series of neat some of them just feel like a series of neat twilight zone stories. Um a series of chronicles maybe. Oh my god. That take place on Mars. Oh terrible (laughs) (laughs) just Uh, bringing it back around yeah i guess so yeah i don't know i wish i could i wish i could make it clear why i enjoyed it so much i apologize that i i don't feel like i'm doing a good job (laughs) it's okay we understand oh do you now just say just say that you liked it and we'll give you a c plus and you'll pass for the semester great thanks (laughs) is this a spot where we tell them that they could write to us I think so. Dude, who's going to do it? I'll do it. Okay. You can write us emails at overduepod at gmail.com. You can tweet at us or use the Facebook at facebook or twitter.com slash overduepod. You can find our website. We don't have a LinkedIn or we don't like we don't have a Pinterest. What if we had a <laughs> Pinterest? What would we pin? Just pictures of books. But pictures of books, I guess. <laughs> Pictures of books and like recipes about how to make a brownie that looks like a book. I don't. You can. 
I don't understand why don't Pinterest. You, why don't you, the listener, email us your Pinterests that are related to books. Pin books and email them to us. Is that how Pinterest works? I don't, I don't know, but we'll figure it out. Um, you can go to our website at www.overduepodcast.com to see not just the book that we have read this week, but also the books that we will be reading over the next two weeks. Um, I will be reading Oscar Wilde's The Importance of Being Earnest Next. I don't know what Craig's going to read after that. But um, in addition to you know keeping up with what we're reading, we also provide Amazon links that you can click. And if you buy the books after clicking those links, or if you buy pretty much anything after clicking those links, we get a teeny tiny little tiny cut, which helps defray like our web hosting and um, I don't know the like the mental toll that this podcast takes oh God. on us. Um, we also have RSS feeds and a link to our podcast in the iTunes store. If you would be so kind as to rate and review us in the iTunes store, that would be awesome. Um, we do have a few ratings and reviews, but we always would like to see more. So that would be great. Uh, what else, Craig? What have I missed? I think that's it. Okay. Tune in next week. Yeah. Um, don't, I, I guess, don't blow yourselves <laughs> Don't up. go to Mars. There's nothing for you there. <laughs> There's nothing for you there. Yeah. And uh, try to be happy. Of course, the story that I'm talking about is um, President Obama. Um, he's going to twerk, and he said that he has the authority to twerk without congressional approval, but he's going to ask Congress anyway to get the permission. To is twerk. this your SNL audition tape? <laughs> Are you auditioning for Weekend Update? No, that's that would be stupid. President Obama discovered that the Syrian rebels may have twerked <laughs> and this is some sort of war crime. They've been twerked at by their own government, Craig. We cannot, <laughs> the international community cannot let this stand. They outlawed twerking at the Geneva Conventions. We've Man, only declared probably... war against twerking 11 times in the history of this nation. It's the war on twerking. I think, you know, more people end up in jail than <laughs> I just knocked my mic because, phone over because you said the war on twerking. <laughs> it's going to be his major initiative is the 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 war on twerking. Oh god. I don't I can't. We can like we can we can take or leave this. I think we need to, I think we twerking. need to leave it. I think we need <laughs> okay. to leave it and maybe try again. Did you see that Disney movie where that, uh, no, damn it. Did you um, see that Disney movie where this dad liked his son a lot because their mom died and then the son swam away and it was called Twerking Nemo? 
I, is that a Disney movie or is that a Pixar movie? Or is it... Twerking Nemo isn't a real movie. No, I mean... Did you see that one where all the twerks talked? It was called Twerks. Twerk Story. <laughs> then they released a sequel just called Planes. Do you, do you think... Do you think that when we leave the room, all the toys just start twerking? <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs>